What is the No Spin News all about? You know that this is a fact-based analysis news program. You know that. We avoid speculation. We don't do conspiracies here. We don't do party politics here. We're not nonpartisan. That's wrong. Not that. Okay, we are advocates for a stronger America and a more just society. We don't believe in communism. We don't believe in socialism. We don't believe in nihilism. We don't believe in the progressive woke culture. We think it is un-American. We don't support that. So you should know what we are. And it would then crystallize what we do. Listen to the No Spin News. Subscribe to Bill O'Reilly's podcast feed wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Sean Spicer Show. Today, we're talking about the Trump indictments, all four of them. There are a lot of questions that I think need to get answered and that people are asking. So guess what? We're going to do that today. Uh, we're going to bring on an amazing guest to discuss all of these indictments, what we need to know about them, where Trump team, the Trump team should be worried, where they should not. Um, we're going to talk to Professor Alan Dershowitz. I used to have him on Spice from Company all the time. I actually grew up watching him as an attorney argue a case called the Von Bielow case in Rhode Island. It was a big deal back then. You've probably heard of it, uh, but he's done everything. He's a professor emeritus at Harvard University. Uh, he's a constitutional legal expert. He's written tons of books. He's got a new one out called Get Trump, which literally predicted all this. But here's why I think it's important that Alan Dershowitz answer these questions. He's never voted for Trump. And you're probably thinking to me, well, then why are you having him on, Sean? Because this is the point. Dershowitz cares about the law. He's not, he actually will tell you, I don't like Trump. I've never voted for him. And I'm a staunch Democrat. But Alan Dershowitz cares about the law. And he looks at what's happening to the law and how it's being interpreted because literally the title of his book, people want to get Trump. And I look at this as a long-term problem. If we're willing to get Trump at any cost, what does that mean for the future, for the future of the legal system, for the future of how we interpret the Constitution? And there's a lot of people out there asking me about the 14th Amendment. Can Trump be removed on the ballot? New Hampshire's talking about that. I'm going to ask him all of these questions about federal court, state court, which case worries him the most, what the team should be worried about, what about the 14th Amendment, can he be removed from the ballot, and what would happen? Let's get to it. We got a lot to break down. All right, as I said, an amazing conversation coming up with Alan Dershowitz, uh, but I want to give you a second. Not to go to the bathroom, not to leave the room, stay. <laughs> this is a great conversation. I'm excited about it. I need you to do me a huge favor. Go to two places. Go online, go to YouTube, subscribe, hit the notification button, and then go to Apple Podcasts. If you go to Spotify, that's great too. Rumble, I'm all for it. Go to all four, go anywhere. I mean, I don't care. Wherever you get those podcasts uh, and watch your shows. But getting the subscription and making sure you're notified is important for two reasons. One, God forbid we ever get canceled or you're not watching it on the first uh you want to be able to get it. You want to have a backup. Second, you're on the move, right? I know this all the time. I go to work out. I go somewhere I want to listen. I, don't, I can't necessarily stream it. So if you get it on Apple, you get it. And then obviously the big thing is it helps us. It shows support for the show. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much for doing that. 
I'm Mike Slater from the podcast Politics by Faith. This is a crazy time in our country. It's stressful, a lot of anxiety, and it's going to get worse. And I realized that one of the things that helps me take away the stress is realizing that there's nothing new under the sun. So on this podcast, we take the news of the day and we run it through the Bible and other periods in history to realize that we've been through this before and we can rise above again. Politics by Faith, anywhere you listen to the podcast. Politics by Faith. As I said, a great conversation headed your way with Alan Dershowitz. Um, as I said before, he's a perfect person because he's an expert. He's seen it all legally. Uh, tons of books on all sorts of things. But the current one is literally called Get Trump. Get Trump. He knew this was coming. He's defended Trump. He stood in the well of the Senate of the United States as a liberal Democrat defending Donald Trump. This is the guy who's willing to sacrifice everything for the rule of law, for the Constitution. That's who I think we should be paying attention to. Because there's a bunch of people on the right, and I get it, I, I've listened to them all. But uh, my view is that this guy on the left is willing up to say what is happening now is wrong. And he doesn't like Trump, he doesn't like his style, he doesn't like his politics. But he's undergone a ton. You want to talk about somebody who's been canceled. The left can't stand this guy. He's told me before he can't go to different religious uh, events because he's been disowned and ridiculed. For what, though? For standing up for the truth. So I'm excited to share with you a great conversation. I think I've encapsulated almost all the questions that I've heard people have asked me to ask him. So... I want to get into it now with Alan Dershowitz. Professor Alan Dershowitz, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So look, there's so much to break down and you are the perfect person to break it down. I, I want to start with this though. There, yesterday, Mark Meadows was in court down in Fulton County. He's making the case that he's a federal official. He's the White House chief of staff. Uh, and that this he should be having this case tried in federal court because not only was a federal official, but the call that was made to Secretary of State Raffensperger occurred over state lines, right? White House is in D.C., the Secretary of State's in Georgia. So first of all, one, will he be successful in that motion? And secondly, why hasn't President Trump asked for the same thing? Well, President Trump will if Meadows is successful. Trump has an even stronger case than Meadows, but Meadows has a very, very strong case. Um, he made his call as chief of staff on the orders of the president. Now, they say it was an illegal call, but that would mean that nobody could come under the statute because people who come under the statute are always charged with crime. So the other side will always argue, well, it was outside of his duties. It was criminal. That's not what the statute was intended to do. It was intended to take allegations, accusations of crimes committed by federal officials while on duty as federal officials and move them to what was regarded as a more objective federal court than a more possibly biased uh, state court. In this case, of course, the bias is there. Uh, the county is overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly Democrat and anti-Trump. So there's a very strong argument to move the case to federal court. And if he prevails, I think Trump will make the same argument. But, Giuliani but just, may make hold the on, argument but, as I guess well. My, but what, just here's what I don't understand as a layperson: If you were President Trump and you just said it yourself, has a stronger case. He's literally the president. There's no question he's a federal official and he's the one actually making the call. Are you risking something by having Meadows make the first move? Because if he was unsuccessful, wouldn't it therefore be a higher bar potentially? 
Well, I don't think Trump controls Meadows at this point. Meadows has an excellent, very experienced lawyer who's making those decisions. Um, and I think it cuts both ways. I think even if Meadows were to lose, Trump would have a good chance of winning. It depends on the language that the court used. Now, I know Rudy Giuliani is going to try this as well. He's not a federal official, but he was uh, employed as a lawyer for the president of the United States. So he, too, is going to try to come under this statute. And um, there are very, very few precedents on it. And so the case may get fairly quickly to the Supreme Court, because if they lose, they may seek what's called an interlocutory appeal or mandamus, some way of getting the case from the trial court up to the Court of Appeals and then eventually to the Supreme Court. And that may also delay the trial. I mean, this is all about timing. You know the strategy. The prosecutors want to get a down and dirty conviction against Trump and his associates as quickly as possible uh, in as biased a jurisdiction as possible, knowing that they risk appellate reversal. But if they can get the conviction before the election and the appellate reversal occurs after the election, well, they've achieved their goals of election right. interference. So, you know, I, as a boy, I, I first came to know you uh, when you were defending Klaus von Bülow. And, and I grew up uh, uh, at my, my father's office was just down the street from that courthouse. And I a couple of times snuck in and, and watched the great Alan Dershowitz. You, so, you know, Rhode Island, the RICO statute, I mean, I think was almost made for organized crime in places like Rhode Island. Did it surprise you that that Fannie Willis, the DA in Georgia, used a RICO statute to go after Trump? Because, again, as a layperson, I look at this and say, so a lot of this seems to be uh, them going after lawyers talking to a client. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I predicted in my book, Get Trump, I predicted all four of these indictments. I predicted them correctly. Mark Levin called me the Nostradamus of lawyers. What I did not predict is that they would go after him on RICO because it's foolish. It's stupid. The New York Times today, which is certainly very anti-Trump, had an op-ed by a lawyer from Georgia saying how foolish it was to use the RICO statute. You know, I had a client once, a nice man of, of, of uh, Italian-American background, and he was indicted under RICO. And he said to me, hey, Alan, these RICO statute, it's anti-Italian. <laughs> I, I said, what do you mean? He says, they call it RICO. They don't call it Morris. They don't call it James. They call it RICO. All my friends are named RICO. Uh, you know, Obviously, everybody knows that the RICO statute was aimed at the Italian mafia. It was then extended to drug cartels and uh, sometimes very complex business dealings. It was never intended to be used against political uh, organization against an election. Look, I was part of Trump. Uh, I was part of uh, Gore versus uh, Bush. I represented the voters of Palm Beach County in the butterfly ballot. Uh, were we a RICO? <clears throat> we were together. We were challenging everything. We were calling for selective recounts. Um, uh, Professor Tribe was coming up with all kinds of weird ideas about how to challenge this election and that election everywhere. Nobody dreamed of going after us for, for RICO. We were just citizens that were exercising our First and Sixth Amendment rights, the right to petition the government and the right to counsel. So in the book, you, you, you lay out these charges you predict to find by the way after this is done i'm going to ask you for powerball numbers hey this is vivek ramaswamy the media has systematically lied to you the hunter biden laptop story the origin of covid19 the trump russia collusion hoax or how your money's being spent in ukraine enough already with the lies no more lies hard truths only that's what the truth podcast is all about it's not standard conservative talking points if you want that go somewhere else
But if you want the hard truth delivered to you in a way that challenges you and will challenge me intellectually, you're not going to find anything like this on the internet. Subscribe to The Truth Podcast today on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, <laughs> but, but so how do you think that, I, I guess the thing that I find fascinating is uh, the people that I talk to seem to say the law's out the window in a lot of these cases, meaning that the desire to get Trump, the name of your book, is so overwhelming that a lot of people on the left, and, and frankly, lawyers as well, and judges potentially, are willing to overlook what should be common sense things that you're describing because they want to literally get Trump. Yeah, I'm reminded when I was a young civil rights worker, I went down south in the early 1960s and we were trained at Howard University. And we were told, do not spit on the sidewalk because they will arrest you for destroying government property. Do not put a cigarette out on the sidewalk. Do not cross against the light. They're out to get you. Get civil rights workers and they will convict you. So you have to make sure you do nothing, even arguably, that it subjects you to arrest. That's what's going on here. They're going after lawyers. They're going after political consultants. They're going after anybody. The 65 Project has threatened to disbar and discipline any lawyer who defends Trump. So I wrote an op-ed piece calling up a bunch of McCarthyites. What do you think they did? They filed a bar charge against me in Massachusetts. Um, and, and, and they're going after everybody. Uh, you know, obviously, there's no substance to the bar charge they filed. But nonetheless, it's costing me a lot of money. And it means I can't appear in certain courts until it's resolved. They'll stop at nothing to get Trump. They don't care who they run over in their way. They must get Trump and they must get him before the election because the goal is to prevent him from voting. Look, I have a constitutional right to vote against Trump for the third time, just like you have a constitutional right to vote for him. And uh, Project 65 and, and judges and prosecutors shouldn't be able to interfere with our right to cast a ballot for or against Donald Trump. That's the American way. So you mentioned getting the conviction, and I agree with you, both in the Georgia case and the Jack Smith case in DC, where just the jury pool is such that it doesn't really matter what the facts are. There's a predisposition to go after uh, folks on the right and definitely Donald Trump. And so when I asked the president's son, Don Jr., at the debate, he mentioned he thought it would definitely go to the Supreme Court. Do you see it playing out that way? And, and frankly, does the timeline allow for it? Meaning if he were convicted, do they have to review it in time? Well, You've asked, as usual, the hardest questions and the most important question. It's all about timing. There are two ways of getting into the Supreme Court. One, to make an appeal before the trial. It's called an interlocutory appeal or writ of mandamus and put it on a fast track and get it to the Supreme Court. That's possible. The other is to wait for a conviction, which is allowing them to achieve their goal and then trying to put it on a fast track before the election. The latter is more difficult because uh, trials, when they're appealed, have lots and lots of paper to go through. Uh, for, take, for example, this case in, in, in D.C., where this trial judge has decided to have the case tried in six months. Now, there are, according to my calculations, 12.8 million documents that the government turned over as exculpatory. You know what they do? They pull a trick. They give you 12 million documents. There may be 200 that are really relevant, but you have to play needle in the haystack. You have to go through every one of the 12 million documents to find the several hundred that are really, really exculpatory. Um, 
at at a pace of uh, every day reading the documents, you'd have to read 71,111 pages a day. I'm as fast a reader as there is, and I've done all these cases on appeal. I can read carefully maybe 1,000 pages a day. If I really rush, maybe 1,500. But 71,000 pages a day, I would refuse to appear in court. I would say to the judge, Your Honor, I don't care how many robes you're wearing and how many oaths you've taken and who nominated you and who confirmed you. No judge can make me commit malpractice. No judge can make me engage in ineffective assistance of counsel. It's like asking a brain surgeon to open up someone's skull without seeing the CAT scan, the PAT scan, and the blood test. That's not the way I practice law, Your Honor. That may be the way you run your courtroom, but it's not the way I practice law. And I refuse to participate in this charade, and you should refuse as well. Let's see if the lawyers uh, are prepared to make that kind of an argument. They should. So you've got these four cases, and this goes to the heart of what you're talking about in terms of timing. Um, the judge in D.C., Chutkin, just announced that she set the date for March 4th, which just coincidentally, coincidentally happens to be the day before Super Tuesday. Um, right. But what would you advise the team, the, the Trump legal team in terms of, I, I get what your point, I actually, I think that's brilliant, right? You, here's how many documents there are. Here's how many the average person can read. Here's how big our legal team is. Your Honor, you're asking us to do X. But there's four different cases. How should they approach the timing on each one? I mean, I'm not asking you to dissect each each one of them, but th it seems like this is a car crash. They're all coming yeah. together. Well, in, in, in my book, Get Trump, I do dissect each of the four cases. And right now, there are three trials scheduled for March. Three trials scheduled for March. Each one will probably take months and are among the most important cases in American history. Three scheduled for March. These judges are just violating the Constitution left and right, mostly left. And then there's one case scheduled for May. No lawyer can ever do that. And you know what the judge and the prosecutors are saying? Well, you don't have to read every page. Yes, I do. Right. I don't assign young kids right out of law school to do my work for me. I read every page when I'm doing a case, when I'm doing a trial. And you never know what you're going to find, a nugget in, in one case. I won a case a few years ago where everybody missed a point, um, an important point. I found it in reading the transcript, and we won the case as the result of that. If I had been rushed to read 71,000 pages in a day, I never could have found that. And, you know, what happens is you lose the case, then you make a motion for a new trial based on violation of the Jenks rule, or the Brady rule that require government to turn over material. Then the government comes in and says, see, on page 11,633, footnote 7, that piece of evidence was there and the defense failed to find it. Shame on them. It's their fault. They waived it. Right. That's the argument that's going to get made. They're setting it up for a scandal. And it's unfair and it's unwise for the judges to participate in this. The judges should say, I'm going to give the defense as much time as they need. And, and Judge Chutkin, she doesn't know the law. She basically said that the Constitution gives the right to uh, the government for a speedy trial. She said there's a public interest in a speedy trial. No, there's not. Only the defendant has the right to a speedy trial. The so, government must give you a fair trial, not a speedy trial. So, so one and of the fair trial requires time to prepare. So all of the arguments that you just brought up make complete sense. Um, and they're rooted in the law. One of the things that the judges have imposed on Trump is this quasi-gag order, saying that if he intimidates witnesses, if he says stuff, 
he will be in violation of his bond. Um, one would believe that the arguments that you just made to me that are in your book uh, would be ones that would be protected under the First Amendment because he can express himself. But given how you've described the process, okay, not what the law is, but what you just said to me about how these judges are interpreting it, is there a concern or should there be a concern from Trump and his team that there, one of these judges is going to find him in violation of these quasi gag order about what he can and cannot say, especially on social media? There is a risk of that. I don't think a judge would do that. You remember, we have a presumption of innocence. Under the law, Trump, you and I have exactly the same status. Three of us are innocent people. Trump, however, has been indicted, not by grand juries, because grand juries have nothing to do with the indictment process. They're just chairs that are moved around by the prosecution. The best proof of that is in Georgia, where they leaked the indictment before it was voted. <laughs> we know that grand juries have no influence. We know that a grand jury will indict anybody a prosecutor wants him to. So what's happened? Prosecutors have decided these guys are guilty and suddenly they lose all their rights. What about the presumption of innocence? No. Uh, look, you can't tamper with witnesses, but if you tamper with witnesses, you've committed a crime so they can arrest them for that. Uh, there's no need to impose bail conditions Bail conditions are supposed to guarantee two things. Number one, that the person doesn't flee. And believe me, Donald Trump's not going anywhere. Right. Uh, even if he didn't have that mugshot, he'd be the most recognized person in, <laughs> in the world. And number two, that he won't commit kind of violent crimes that are irreme irremediable. Um, none of that's at work here. They're using the fact that there has been an indictment, a fake indictment, because all indictments essentially are fake, um, to to prevent him from campaigning in his style. I don't like his style. That's why I don't vote for him. But that's his style. And he attacks people and he calls them names. And some judge might think of that as witness intimidation. I don't think of that as witness intimidation. I think of that as, you know, Trump's politics. So one of the things that has garnered a lot of attention, especially from folks on the right, which I think was initially dismissed, but seems to be gaining more traction in states like New Hampshire, is this idea that at some point under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which talks about anyone you know, who is engaged, engaged in insurrection, um, that they will be removed from the ballot. And the Secretary of State in New Hampshire has said that he is seeking an opinion from the Attorney General. Now, let me play this out for you a second. You take New Hampshire, Michigan, maybe Pennsylvania, and say, we're going to remove him from the 14, because of the 14th Amendment because he engaged in an insurrection, even though he's never been charged with an insurrection, even though he's been guilty, whatever. But play this out for me. And then there's an election where almost by default, Trump will be enabled to get 270 electoral votes. That's would right. there be any recourse? Of course, there would be what? recourse to the Supreme Court. The problem is that, you know, Professor Lawrence Tribe and Judge Ludic have made up this story. It, uh, I know the 14th Amendment as well as they do. It was designed to make sure that people who fought for the South in the Civil War didn't get elected to state or federal positions. The amendment itself has all kind of provisions in it that show it's related to the Civil War. It talks about enslaved people. It talks about paying the debts of the southern states. It talks about all the things relating to the Civil War. And then suddenly they interpret this as self-enforcing. There's no process. This doesn't say it has to be part of an indictment. It doesn't say the Senate has to do it or the House has to do it. With impeachment, we have a process. With the 25th Amendment, we have a process. With the 14th Amendment, it's, quote, self-enforcing, which means 
Lawrence Tribe and, and Judge Ludic can say, we have an opinion that we think he's engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And if the Secretary of State, who nobody's ever heard of, concludes that, he determines who the next president of the United States is. Do you really think the framers of the 14th Amendment had that undemocratic, anti-democratic uh, view in mind? No, obviously but, but not. This is made up by, by radical zealots, some of them Republicans, by the way, like right. Judge Ludic, who are part of the Get Trump a posse. Uh, they're so anti-Trump, they're prepared to destroy the Constitution. They're prepared to, to use any means toward the uh, end of getting Trump. And that's why it's so important for Democrats like me and liberals to fight against my fellow Democrats who are misusing the Constitution for their own partisan political ends. For me, the Constitution is more important than party affiliation. Okay, so this is where I need your help then, because I, so let's just hypothetically say, for the sake of argument, that New Hampshire, Michigan, Pennsylvania remove Trump from the ballot. Um, I have long believed that, the, you know, unless he can get an immediate relief um, on that ballot, that, the, that there would be an election and the Dems would say, well, sorry, the election happened. You say the Supreme Court. When would the Supreme Court intervene and would there be enough time? Because part of the problem is once the ballots are printed, oh, well, he wasn't on it. And you well, can't believe me. I believe me. I understand that. I represented the people who were victimized by the butterfly ballot in Palm Beach. OK. And, and what's the recourse then once the election yeah, happens? The, the recourse is it would be an illegitimate election. If, if Trump was disqualified in enough states that could have put him over the top, the election would be illegitimate. And the Supreme Court hopefully would hold that before the election. Um, you know, it might have to have an extreme remedy, an extreme remedy, postponing the election for a week or 10 days right. or making ballots printed on an emergency 24-7 basis. Uh, you, one would hope you wouldn't have to undo an election and call for a new election a day. That's never happened in American history, even during the Civil War, even during the First and Second World Wars. We always have our elections on the right day. But these radical anti-Trump zealots like like Tribe and Ludic are destroying democracy. They're calling for uh, remedies that would undo the right of people in certain states to cast their ballot. That's just unconstitutional. Uh, everybody over the age of, you know, we fought so hard to change the Constitution. We now, black people can vote, women can vote, young people can vote. Republicans can't vote, according to Lawrence Tribe and, and, and Ludicus. They're afraid they might vote for Donald Trump. And electing Donald Trump, they think, is worse than destroying the Constitution. I don't agree. So in the book, you said that, you know, you, you lay out all four of these cases. You've got the, the, the Alvin Bragg case in New York. You've got two Jack Smith cases, right, Florida and D.C. And then you've got this Fannie Willis case down in Georgia. From your perspective, if you're handicapping the four indictments. Rank them from one to four in terms of concern to the Trump team. Well, I think there are two ways of ranking them. The strongest case is the Florida case in which Donald Trump is on video waving a material saying it was classified. I could have declassified it. I didn't. It's secret. That's a smoking cigarette butt case. Why do I say smoking? It's like a smoking gun, but it's such a tiny little case. It's a cigarette butt. You know, so many people have had classified material that that's not worthy of being brought. But it's the strongest case. The weakest by far is New York, but it's New York. It's Manhattan. I don't think I don't think, you know, Jefferson, Adams, Lincoln, Jesus and Mohammed could win a case for Donald Trump uh, in, in New York. 
Uh, so that that's a tough case for him. The D.C. case by far is is the hardest because it's a good prosecutor generally. Um, a thin case, not like Georgia, which is uh, a bizarre case. And it's in the District of Columbia, where 95 or so percent of the people uh, voted against Trump and probably 80 percent hate him. And it's in a district where there's not a lot of voir dire of jurors. So I would think that Trump has the greatest concern about D.C. Also, if he loses in D.C., it strengthens the argument that he's committed insurrection or rebellion, even though he's not charged with that you can then interpret that verdict in that way, and it would strengthen the 14th Amendment case. So I think by far the most challenging case uh, for Trump is is the D.C. case. I think the Georgia case, parts of it will be thrown out. It's a mess, 19 defendants. Some of them want a speedy trial. Some of them want a slow trial. But D.C., uh, with a March 4th uh, trial day, poses the greatest challenge to, to Donald Trump. And uh, his lawyers are probably up to it, but you know, no lawyer can read uh, seventy-one thousand pages a day. It's just impossible. Well, they can read your book and then hopefully be ready to to know what to look no, for. No, that won't be enough. That, that won't uh -oh. be enough. That'll be enough to have a conversation with me, but not enough to stand in front of twelve jurors and defend the man's life and liberty. Let, let me get back to that Georgia case for just a second. You mentioned you've got Trump and then eighteen co-defendants. How does something like that work? I mean, you, you mentioned. Uh, some of them want a speedy trial. Some of them wanted to go to federal court. Uh, some of them have disparate interests. How does does that have to stay together or can it start to get broken apart? And if it gets broken apart, how do you control what happens in one not affecting another? It will be broken apart. It has to be broken apart because Georgia has a speedy trial statute that if the defendant seeks it and two of the defendants so far have sought speedy trial, a third one is about to, I think. Um, they have no choice um, but to give them that speedy trial in a couple of months. Now, they can't bring Donald Trump to trial in two or three months, so there's going to have to be a severance. Look, uh, the, the DA down there just lied through her teeth to the American public and to her constituents when she basically said, I could bring this case to trial in six months with all the defendants together. No, she can't. She knows it. And she knows she was misleading the American public. This case will have to be divided into several units. And that, of course, gives the defense some advantage because they get to see a preview of the Trump case uh, in the case against Cheeseboro and Powell and some of the others. So uh, it's going to be a mess. I mean, having it, it was so foolish to indict 19 people and to indict them under RICO. If they had a clean, small case, maybe they could have tried it in a reasonable period of time. But this case is a logistical nightmare. You mentioned and the judge is probably a, the judge's kid. I mean, you know, just uh, newly to the bench uh, with very little experience. Um, how that judge is going to handle this is going to be a real test. I'm, I hear good things about the judge, but no judge can handle a case like this <laughs> and give everybody a fair trial. Yeah, this I think this judge is going to be as popular or as well known as Lance Ito at some point. Uh, but. You mentioned your role in, in Bush v. Gore in 2000. Um, one of the things that they've gone after Trump and his team for is these fake electors. And um, wh where's the line between his ability to to work within the process, meaning petition his government, call Brad Raffensperger, call uh, different people in the government and make his case um, versus what would be deemed maybe a criminal act? And how much should they look at Bush v. Gore in 2000 as a guide? They should look at it very closely. Uh, anything that 
requires you to ask the question, where do they draw the line? Shouldn't be the subject of criminal prosecution. You know, it was, it was uh, Thomas Jefferson who once said, a criminal statute has to be so clear that a reasonable person uh, can understand it if he reads it while running, while running. Uh, I've read these things while sitting with 60 years of experience. And I have to tell you, I don't understand the difference between legal and illegal. You know, people on one side call it fake electors. People on the other side call it alternate electors. In Hawaii, they had alternate electors in 1960. Uh, there is a memorandum uh, that uh, Professor Tribe wrote along with Cheeseborough, who was then his research assistant, which set out a whole bunch of ways of challenging uh, uh, Gore uh, versus Bush, Bush versus Gore. Um, I was not part of the Gore defense team, but I was the lawyer for the voters of Palm Beach County complaining about the butterfly ballot, where thousands of Jewish people voted accidentally for Pat Buchanan, who they hated, because they thought they were voting for Joe Lieberman, because his hole was next to the, the Joe Lieberman name, and they wanted to vote for the first Jew who was ever on a national ballot. We brought that to the attention of the authorities that day, but there was nothing that could be done. It was uh, too late. And that election may very well have been determined. But, but th that gets by back to my point, ballot. though. Professor, that actually gets back to the other point that, that there seems to be this sense of, oh, well, and, and I think obviously, you know, there is a case to be discussed with respect to these people who voted because of the mechanism, the butterfly ballot that they were trying to punch. And we had hanging chads and quasi hanging chads and all that kind of stuff. But to your point, it seems like they ruled afterwards, oh, well, the vote has been taken. There's nothing we can do. And that's kind of what I was asking you before. That that's it, right. That I, I, I can, my concern is that the, the court looks at what happens if Trump's removed from the ballot and says, well, too bad. It's the votes happened. We can't undo it. You can't you can't do that. The American public would not stand for an election which was determined by some secretary of state taking a candidate off the ballot under the 14th. Amendment. But how's that, that different? Than what, but isn't that the argument that you're making in Palm Beach that you said because of this butterfly ballot? That's right. These people wanted to vote for Joe Lieberman uh, as vice president to Al Gore. They were, and, and it was enough of them were the clearly, you know, undermined in their effort to do that. That's what I get, though, is that they, they clearly overlooked it once. And now I think that's right. What happened is Al Gore didn't want us to bring that any further. Uh, and he ordered us not to bring the butterfly ballot case uh, to the upper courts. And obviously we listened to him. I think that was a mistake. Uh, but his view was what could be done about it? You can't have another election. Uh, how do we how can we prove that these a Jewish voters who voted for uh, Buchanan really would have voted for Al Gore. It's obvious, common sense, but it would be difficult to prove in a court of law. And, and, and that would be true here, too. Um, you know, you would disqualify them from a state and then uh, they would argue, well, who knows how the state would have gone? New Hampshire maybe would have gone uh, against uh, uh, Trump, um, maybe other states. So it would be speculative. That's why it's important for the Supreme Court to get these cases now to take them up before the election, before the primaries. But that's a big ask. The Supreme Court likes to take its time. And I think that the sophisticated get Trump lawyers on the other side are taking advantage of this. Uh, they're using their knowledge of the law to deprive Americans of their right to vote. So as someone who has been through this a while, uh, obviously, Professor Emeritus at Harvard, you've written not just get Trump, but I think you're up to like 542 books. Uh, no, just just 52. Just, just 52. <laughs> yeah, 52. Uh, okay. So 
and you've covered it from all different angles. We use a word a lot these days in society, the weaponization of. Do you think that the weaponization, if I can use the term now, of the judicial system, of these laws to get Trump will have a profound lasting impact on how the law goes forward? Meaning folks on the right now are going to say, great, we're going to use it to go after so-and-so. We're going to go after so-and-so in more Republican or conservative-friendly jurisdictions. I have no doubt that's going to happen. Weaponization started by people like Professor Tribe is contagious. Uh, There'll be tit-for-tat misuses of it on all sides, and it will become part of our system of of injustice. Um, It's a terrible phenomenon that's going on. You know, throughout our history, people have said, oh, this is different. You have to suspend this right. It's different. We have to put 110,000 Japanese Americans in detention centers. It's different. We have to make sure that anybody who was on the left can't run for office and McCarthyism that's different. The communist threat was, everybody always says it's different. Today, people are saying Trump is different. You know, when, when, when Larry David, who was a good friend of mine, who I helped his kid get into college, I, you know, entertained him at my house. He used my gym. When he starts screaming at me in Chilmark on Massachusetts saying, I'm disgusting, I'm despicable. uh, I could see the veins in his head almost bursting. It was as if he was talking to Heinrich Himmler and I had just defended Adolf Hitler. Um, he sees Donald Trump as Adolf Hitler. And I've had people tell me that and attack me for in any way defending the rights of Adolf Hitler. What would you have done if Adolf Hitler asked you to be his lawyer? I'll tell you what he would have done. I would have killed him with my bare hands because Adolf Hitler is unique in history and, and, and you can't make those comparisons to Donald Trump. Donald Trump is running for office. I'm going to vote against him. You're going to vote for him. That's what America is about. Let the process go forward. Let it not be interfered with by the weaponization of our judicial system, which will become permanent. It will become permanent. The new McCarthyism is becoming the new Americanism, and that's the great tragedy. Let me ask you one more question, because I'm going to talk about this later in the week. You defended Donald Trump, as you said, not, not because you politically agree with him, because the law and how the thing was brought. There's a lot of talk now by Kevin McCarthy and House Republicans about impeaching Biden. Do you think that because of this effort to get Trump on the impeachment side, not the legal side, that we've now weaponized impeachment and we've changed what was meant to be high crimes and misdemeanors to we're just going to get anyone who's out of... Absolutely. Absolutely. They're going to go and try to get a ready... Congresswoman Brobart has introduced articles of impeachment. They are just as invalid as the articles of impeachment were against Donald Trump. They are misreading the Constitution, Republicans. Uh, You can't accuse right now on the record uh, uh, Biden of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. You need to have criminal type behavior akin to treason and bribery. That's the argument I made in front of the Senate. I made that for Donald Trump. I would make the same argument for Joe Biden. For me, I don't care about the politics of it. I care only about the constitutionality. Okay. Professor Alan Dershowitz, the author of 52 books, including the latest Get Trump, uh, where you predicted literally these four uh, indictments. Uh, Go buy the book. It's a great, uh, I would say it's an addition to the conversation that we just had. But as always, you break down things in such an easy, simplistic way that us non-lawyers can understand it. I always appreciate your time and your counsel. So thank you, sir. Thank you. There's a lot of guests, a lot of smart lawyers out there that we could have had on, and we will. But I thought it was important 
Do you hear what he said, though, about the, real, the reality of that Supreme Court challenge? This is real stuff. This is a guy who is a left-wing Democrat that didn't vote for Trump ever. He's telling us the playbook, what they're going to do. This isn't some conspiracy theory. This is reality. This is what's happening. The idea, I mean, he literally titled the book, Get Trump for a Reason. That's what they want to do. They don't care about the law. And I've had countless lawyers tell me it doesn't matter what the law is anymore. That's what they're going to do. So hearing from him should underscore how important this thing is right now. They want to get Trump. They want to bar him from running for office. They want to go after people who are associated with them. They want people who might support him to think twice going into this election. Think about that. They want to make sure that it's so unpalatable the laws against them. Damn be the consequences for the future. Constitution, the law. So think about what he said, because it's not to be misstated or, mis or underappreciated. This is what's coming down the pike. And you heard me ask him over and over again, because I think it's so true. What happens if they pull him off the ballot? Oh, Americans are going to be outraged. I agree with him. But do you think that these guys don't think that, the folks in New Hampshire, Michigan, Pennsylvania, et cetera? You don't think that they think that this is going to be a problem, that they're going to face outrage? I don't know that they care. They'll be hailed as a hero by Joy Reid on MSNBC. They know that this is going to be divisive. They want to be heroes. Why do you think that Fannie Willis in Georgia is doing what she's doing? Lawyers, even on the left and never Trumpers, are saying this is insane, 19 defendants. But she's a hero. We played that clip yesterday. The left loves her for standing up, making Trump do the mugshot. That's what they're going for. This is what's at stake. And you're not hearing this on CNN, the Washington Post, Politico. They're not giving you this kind of breakdown because they don't want you to be worried about the law or the Constitution or the country. They want to get Trump. So understand what's happening. If someone like Alan Dershowitz is about is going to give you the warning, take it seriously. So um, we're going to continue to talk about these issues and give you insight and guess that bring you a perspective that you're not going to see anywhere else. Once again, I thank you for watching. I thank you for sharing. Thank you for the support of our sponsors. Please do me that favor as I asked before. Like the show, subscribe on all of the platforms, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Rumble. It helps us grow. It helps us the success of the show. I appreciate all that. I'll see you back here tomorrow on The Sean Spicer Show.